Well, one of the things I forgot to do this morning was print out my selected reading, so I'm going to have to read off the screen with you all. <laughs> this means I have to get down over here. Uh, this is from chapter 12, uh, 1 Corinthians. Uh, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And later in that uh, chapter, for the body does not consist of one member, but of many. As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. From chapter 13, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all the mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Moving to chapter 14. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. Again, verse 40, but all things should be done decently and in order. And as I have men will mention later, that is the Presbyterian's favorite verse right there. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, the holy history that is recorded here was written down for our instruction, not just theirs. Uh, these people in Corinth are examples to us on whom the ends of the ages has come. These events remind us of the power of self-deception, of pleasure and idolatry. They also remind us that you are faithful. Texts like these are one way that you guard us from such temptations. Instruct us now that we might enjoy the earthly benefits of our eternal salvation in Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. We've been talking for eight weeks. This is the ninth week 
Uh, we were talking about cultivating a culture of discipleship within a church. And so we've talked about, you know, what's a disciple and who makes disciples and um, how disciples are made, all of these sorts of questions. And we have the final commitment that we're going to be looking at this week and next week. So imagine or, or, or ponder for a moment when you think about being discipled, is there a location that comes to mind for you? Perhaps you think, Starbucks. <laughs> Someone's in sync with me this morning. I'm not a big Starbucks person, but a lot of people think about sitting down one-on-one -on -one with somebody in Starbucks and talking about the gospel. Some of you have just come from Sunday school class, and so that's what comes to your mind. You discipled young people in Sunday school. I want you to think bigger with me just for a little bit. Where are disciples made? I believe that Paul wants us to recognize that disciples are made in corporate worship. That's not the only place, but it is a key place, a foundational place, an important place, and that is part of what is going on in chapters 12 through 14. So let's examine this chapter by chapter with one question that sort of gets answered within that chapter. And why, the first question is, why does discipleship take place in corporate worship? We're going to answer this from some passages that we've already seen in 1 Corinthians 12. I want to recognize that Paul's purpose was not necessarily discipleship. He wasn't talking about that, and yet what he says has incredible application for discipleship. He starts off this chapter by noting that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. He's talking about the, the religious context from which they were converted, from which they were saved. In other words, they were worshipers already, but they worshipped the wrong gods, and they worshipped them in the wrong way. And for, uh, for those of us who came to Christ a little later in life, we have to recognize that we too were already worshipers. We worshipped the wrong things, and we also worshipped them the wrong way. For many of us, it was worshipping on Sunday morning in front of our TVs with our favorite team on. And that begins today. Be careful about your heart, my brothers and sisters. Okay? Mute idols that can lead us astray. But in Corinth, there were multiple idols, multiple religions from which these Christians had come. And most of these religions were very sensory-driven. It was all about the music. It was all about um, drink for some of them, particularly the, the worship of Dionysius, otherwise known as Bacchus, the god of wine. There was a lot of wine that was drunk at uh, some of these worship services in Corinth. It was focused on these, this ecstatic speech where people would go into trances and they would say things that were incomprehensible to everyone else around them, but nonetheless, it was practiced. And unfortunately, it was also filled with debauchery and pleasure. 
We see this as well in the worship of Sybil, as, long as, the, as, long as, as well as some of the other gods that were worshipped in Corinth. And so, in other words, you have these people who have a profound experience of worship, who now come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, and they are tempted to import the same worship practices into their new worshipping community. That is what Paul is addressing. Now, our passage this morning that Mark read from Malachi chapter 1 should remind us that really bad worship didn't start with the Corinthians. We see that it was taking place within Israel at that time because, uh, as, as we saw from that reading, that they were cheating God by bringing these bad offerings to him. They were bringing the animals that nobody wanted as opposed to the ones they wished they could keep because they were corrupt in their worship. And so let's not think that corrupt worship is limited to Corinth and their problems, but it is a very human problem. For the Corinthian church, it seems that their focus was on experience. They had changed the object of their worship. It was no longer Dionysus, it was no longer Sybil, and it was now Jesus, but they had they had kept a lot of these corrupt worship practices and attitudes. It wasn't just about the practices, but also about the attitudes. And that is the context into which Paul speaks. He reminds them that to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. In other words, it's not just that some people who are Christians get the Spirit, but all people who are Christians get the Spirit. It's not just some people who receive gifts from that same Spirit, but all Christians receive gifts from that very same Spirit. They don't all receive the same gift. They receive different gifts. And so what Paul is doing throughout this entire chapter is building that idea of uh, unity in diversity. You don't all have to be the same. And actually, uh, God plans differences within the community. The Holy Spirit distributes different gifts according to his wisdom for the good of the community. He doesn't give us all the same gifts. These varied gifts all have this very same source, and that is God's Holy Spirit, and it is for the common good. Paul likens this to the body and its members. He talks about Christ being the head, and and all of us are united in Christ. It's almost impossible not to think of DNA. How every cell in the body, even though that cell might have a different function within that body, all has the same DNA in that body. It's united, even though it's diverse. What's Paul saying here? Part of what Paul is saying is that these gifts are not for your good individually. In other words, uh, you know, God does not give each of us gifts so that they help us. But God gives each of us gifts so that those gifts help others. 
The gifts you have are not for your good, but they are for the common good. The gifts that you have are not for your glory, but they're for the glory of Christ. Part of what's interesting in this passage is there's a reflection of the, of the Shema that takes place. And uh, that, of course, is from Deuteronomy 6. We're going to be there next week. Declare, O Israel, that the Lord your God is one. We see these gifts of the Spirit. Many gifts, one Spirit. It is because of those many gifts of the one Spirit, we see that there are many different kinds of service, but they're all to the same Lord who is Christ. There are many kinds of effectual working of those gifts that are then used for service. In other words, that service becomes effective. And how is it made effective? By the one God, the Father. And so we, we unpack this Trinitarian theology okay, that, take, that is intended to understand what takes place within the life of the church. That those gifts result in service, that service results in effectual fruit, and all of this traces back to Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Now the context in which Paul is speaking these things is specifically the corporate worship of the people in Corinth. In other words, these gifts were to be exercised primarily, not exclusively, but primarily within the corporate worship for that common good of the whole church. They're not intended for your personal private blessing, but the good of the church. And part of what this implies is that each of us matters in public worship. Each of us is important in public worship. Each of us has a role to play in public worship. Even if you aren't up front, you have an important place to play. You have the same spirit that people up front have, and you have the same opportunities to serve, even if it's not service in the same way. And so corporate worship is intended to be the body gathered in order to help other people to know and obey Jesus. Let's think about this for a moment. A body. See me now? I'm doing something, right? What am I doing? I'm walking. What do I need to walk? Right. I don't need one thing. I need many things. If my body was just a foot, it wouldn't go anywhere. (laughs) And it actually couldn't do all that much. It would just be a foot. In order to walk, I need feet, and I need ankles, and I need calves, and uh, the, the tibia and the fibia and all of these different parts that make up my leg. But it's not even just my legs in order to walk. Uh, my spine has to work right. And there's muscles in my back that uh, all too often don't feel so good. 
that make it difficult to walk. And that's what Paul is getting at. If the whole body is the same thing, nothing can get done. If the whole body is an eye, you can see really well, but you can't really move and do anything with what you see. You can't respond to what you see. So we see that the Spirit is given in numerous ways so that the body functions in a healthy fashion. So, answering our first question, why does discipleship take place in corporate worship? The Spirit gives gifts to use in corporate worship for corporate discipleship. So how is it, kind of getting back to that idea of the, the Shema and, and uh, the, the idea of uh, effectiveness, how are the gifts rendered useless or effective in corporate worship? We see as we think about the Corinthians, they were using their gifts, yet they were creating disorder, and disunity in their worship. Uh, Throughout this passage, including chapter 11, we find that there were problems with the Lord's table. It was marked by the class distinctions, the haves and the have-nots. Some people ate really well at the Lord's table, and some people didn't. Part of that was the impatience that took place. Some people were drunk at the Lord's table. But it wasn't just division and drunkenness that we see the self-centeredness of their worship. It seemed to be all about me, me, me. My gift. Look at me as I utilize my gift. Isn't it awesome that I have my gift? And this is the attitude that Paul is confronting within the church at Corinth. And he begins with those three statements, three parallel statements that I read for you. And the first one is about music. The second one is about giftedness. And the third statement is about sacrifice. But in each of these, he then says, if I have not love. Music is great. If I have not love, however, I'm just a clanging gong. In other words, I don't do anything. Gongs just make noise. Cymbals just make noise. Uh, They're they're one-note instruments, not multiple-note instruments. You can't play a song with just a gong. Is what Paul is getting at. And so you accomplish nothing unless you have love. In terms of the giftedness that comes that is expressed, if we have not love, then we are actually nothing, he says. What a profound statement. Not just that that I'm not effective, but I'm nothing if I have not love. And in terms of sacrifice, usually people sacrifice hoping that they gain something, right? That's the whole point of sacrifice. 
You're hoping you get, you either protect something or gain something. And Paul says, if I have not love, I gain nothing. Love sounds kind of important, doesn't it? We often think of this, pa- this passage in the context of wedding ceremonies. But it's at the heart of a discussion at worship. That worship is intended to be an expression of love. Not simply love for God, but also love for one another. Both the vertical and the horizontal. For those of you who were in community groups the last couple of years, Goss, God, others, self. Worship is intended to have an awareness of God and engaging with God. An awareness of others and an engagement with those others. An awareness of yourself, what's going on inside of you and engaging with that. Bringing it into the presence of God. That's what Paul is getting at. Why does Paul say this? Well, that very passage in Deuteronomy 6 that talks about the Shema then goes to say that in addition to the fact that the Lord your God is one, therefore love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. In other words, don't be divided in your love for God. He is one, you be one in your response to him. Love him with everything that you are. From Leviticus 19, we see that we are to love our neighbors because the Lord is our God. Love them as we love ourselves. And when Jesus is asked about what the greatest commandment is, what the most important commandment is, you know, what does Jesus say? He quotes from Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19 saying that the second one is just like it. All the law and all the prophets hang upon what? Love. Therefore, Paul's thinking, worship is only pleasing to God when it is characterized by love to God and to one another. Love matters to God precisely because God is love, as the Apostle John said. Because we have been loved by God in a profound way and that he sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sin, because we have been deeply loved by God, consistently loved by God, savingly loved by God, we are to love him back and, as John says in that same passage, to love our brothers who are made in his likeness. Now, Paul talks about what love is both positively and negatively. And on the positive side, from our memory verse from this month, we see that love is patient, it's kind, it rejoices with the truth, it bears, it believes, it hopes, And it endures all things. But if we want to know what love isn't, love isn't envy. It's not arrogant or prideful. It's not rude. 
It's not demanding, irritable, resentful, rejoicing in evil. And so we have a picture of how, how love should operate within the context of a worship service and the picture of what it looks like when love is not operating within a worship service. This gets back again to this idea that gifts are exercised for the common good. The only reason they will be exercised for the common good is if we love our brothers and sisters instead of seeking personal glory. Acts 8 is a really good example of the personal glory thing. Simon Magnus, whose name means Simon the Great, he was a magician in Samaria. And when the gospel came, he, he, he seemed to believe the gospel. And then uh, when, because uh, this is the time when the, the gospel is spreading out because of persecution. And so that whole idea of uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Okay, And so there's like these mini Pentecosts that reveal, yes, God really is doing this among the Samaritans. And so the, the giving of the Spirit awaits the coming of the other Simon, also known as Peter, and John as they lay hands on these people who have believed and they receive the Spirit. Simon is so taken aback by this thing, the, the wrong Simon, the bad Simon, Magnus, He's so taken aback by, by this. He wants that gift for himself. He offers money to get the capacity to give the Holy Spirit to other people. In other words, his pride problem has not been addressed. He still wants preeminence within the community. And he's essentially offering a bribe to Peter and John to get this power for himself. And that is when Peter says, to hell with you, literally. May you be cursed. See the danger of pride in a worship service? It pits you against God. Threatens your soul. But love, on the other hand, motivates us to care for others, to care for their needs, instead of just our own. For instance, Galatians 5 is not talking about um, worship itself particularly, but we still see, for in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, only faith. Working through love. It's not the only place. Philippians 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's community life, and that's part of what is supposed to be played out in a corporate worship service. And so that means that the liturgy, that means that the prayers, 
That means that the sermons, that means that the songs, all should be evaluated in terms of their benefit to the body and not simply to the individual. You might not be profoundly blessed this morning, but hopefully there are others who are. And when we have the mindset that as long as that's happening, I'm good, then we're good. But the consumerist mindset thinks it's always about what blesses me all the time. And if I don't like that song, why are we singing that song? I don't like that prayer, why are we praying that prayer? Well, someone else might be incredibly encouraged and consoled by that song or that prayer. And it's humbling for us to think that the worship service isn't all about us individually. It's about us together, one body. Corporate worship, just like family life, exposes our lack of love. It reveals far too often how arrogant and demanding and irritable and resentful we can be. But I want you to remember this, that as God reveals your lack of love and worship, he also reveals the Savior who was crucified for those manifestations of your lack of love. He is the atoning sacrifice for our envy, Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our arrogance that is displayed in worship. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for the rudeness with which we treat others in our worship service. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our demandingness in worship or family life. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our irritability Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our resentfulness, for our rejoicing in evil. And so even as God reveals the depths of sin in your soul, remember that he points you to Jesus who has already been crucified for those very things so that you experience pardon for those things. But not only that, but he then begins to instill that patience, kindness, perseverance, faith, and hope that we need to love each other because he has them in infinite amounts. And so love shapes the use of our gifts in corporate worship for corporate discipleship. Third question from, that kind of gets at chapter 14, so what? Or, perhaps you like, what does it look like for the gifts to be exercised in love? Remember, the, the Corinthian worship was quite chaotic we, we see here in chapter 14 that people were talking over one another. They weren't giving each other space, opportunity 
but crowding one another out in a very unloving way. And there was even worse going on. Paul emphasizes that all must be done so that the church may be built up. That's the drumbeat of this whole chapter. Edification of the church. Building up of the church. Building up of the church. And so, what Paul would say is that each of us, each of us should speak, should sing, should pray, not simply for your own edification, although don't neglect your own interest. Okay? Do that for, for your own edification, but also do it for the edification of the church. Have a bigger, grander vision and goal. Paul wants all of the Corinthians and therefore all of us to strive to excel in building up the church. That idea of of striving has that uh, idea of, of consistent effort. Moving towards a goal, not letting things stop you and get in the way. Paul wants them to strive, to labor, to move forward. More and more loving, more and more focused on the edification of the others. And so that effort should uh, be increasing in quantity as well as perhaps even quality. Sing louder, listen better, encourage often, welcome the visitor, all of these things. Paul again says, let all things be done for building up. You know, in case they missed it the first three times Paul said it, he gets back to this. He wants them to get this thing, okay? Particularly with the exercise of the gifts. Now what's going on is that the Corinthian church seems to be really captivated by speaking in tongues, and we, some of us have known churches like that. Or that's like, you know, that's like the ticket in. That's like the most important thing. Like, if you ain't doing that, you ain't nobody. That was the Corinthian church. They had exalted this gift above all the other gifts, in part because it so resembled the worship they were so used to before they were Christians, I think. Paul quotes... From Isaiah 28, to to convey this idea of what happens when, when you don't understand someone else in worship. In Isaiah 28, it was a sign of judgment. Because they hadn't listened to the clear teaching of the word, what was going to happen to the Israelites was that they were going to hear the foreign language of the Assyrians who were taking them into exile. So Paul's kind of like, Speaking in tongues ain't really all that you think it is. It's not intended to be the the measure of Christianity, the measure of faith, the measure of love. Really, it's not. Paul wanted them to prefer to speak only a couple of words that were intelligible, understandable, and were encouraging to their brothers and sisters. Because if you don't understand your brother and sister, it's like they're a foreigner to you. 
And that's not what is supposed to take place in the worship service. How we speak to others when we gather matters. And how we speak should be an exercise in love for the building up of others. And that includes the pulpit. In the Vine Project, they emphasize that the pulpit ministry is where it all begins. It doesn't end there. It's, but it's intended to continue through the small group ministries and, and Sundays at nine and all of that. But the pulpit ministry sets the tone and the pace for a culture of discipleship. That people are hearing regularly what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. First and foremost. And so the pulpit ministry matters. And, and as we see in 1 Corinthians, well, what happens is the evaluation of the prophecies that were given. The elders of the church gathered together and they weighed those things and they said, hey, that does not conform to Scripture. That's out of here. Hey, this one conforms to Scripture. This is true and good. We believe this. There was a weighing of the prophecies that took place. The weighing of tongues that were interpreted took place. Similar to what we see Acts 17. Now let's be careful for a second when I read this. Now those Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness examining the Scriptures daily to see if things were so. Now, a couple weeks ago, we talked about Thessalonica. We talked about how they received the Word of God as, you know, the words of Paul as if it were the words of God, which it actually is, and they had repented and believed. Those were mostly Gentiles. The Jewish population in Thessalonica resisted the message of the gospel and they were party to the riot that resulted that meant that Paul had to leave town. The Jewish population in Berea welcomed the gospel, but they didn't do it blindly. They went back to the scriptures to see if it was true. So a healthy church goes back to the scriptures to make sure that what is said is true. Now let's wrap up with the Presbyterian's favorite verse. Let everything be done decently and in order. In fact, I have a friend, he probably still has this shirt, even though it was 20 years ago, because he hasn't changed in size in all of those years, I think. Presbyterians do it decently and in order, is uh, what his shirt said. I'm sure someone somewhere makes it. So if you go on Amazon, you might be able to find it. This does not rule out the fact of the work of the Spirit. Sometimes people talk about you know spontaneity and equating that with the work of the Spirit. The Spirit is not bound to you know the 75 to 90 minutes of the worship service. <laughs> 
He doesn't work just then. He works leading up to it and the planning of it. And so that everything kind of fits together. And sometimes I'm really amazed because, as I've said before, when, when Diane was our uh, in, in the worship team, we're planning things, I just don't always make the connection points in my brain, and yet the Spirit does. And so things that I choose work like really well with what Anne plans, and it's just like, <laughs> I wish I could take credit for that, <laughs> but I can't. Because I didn't do it. It just happened. That's the Spirit working so that things are decently in an order. It's like building a house. We're talking a lot about edification, which is building of something. You don't just start with the roof. Or you don't just decide, today I'm going to do the windows. Unless it's time to do the windows. There's an order in which a church, uh, a house is built up. You start at the bottom, and then you build the frame, and then you put on a, the, the beginnings of the roof, and then you start to put the walls up and put the windows in and all of these things. Things about which I am not qualified to discuss with you because I am not a carpenter or a builder of homes. But it must be done in order. And that's what Paul is saying. If you're going to build people up, there really is an order to which things happen. People begin to know what to expect. They begin to learn how they can contribute. They begin to submit to one another in the power of the Spirit. And the building grows. The body grows. And so if we were to summarize chapter 14, it would be this way. Speak words that build up other disciples in corporate worship. So where are disciples made? Disciples are made in corporate worship services where the Spirit's gifts are exercised for the common good out of love for God and love for neighbor in order to build up the church. Let's think about that for a second, though. It's not just corporate worship. The Spirit has to be utilizing us. Gifts need to be exercised. Love needs to be at work. Or we are nothing and do nothing and gain nothing. Now, this is not the only place where disciples are made, but it is one of the two primary places. Next week, we're going to look at the other primary place where disciples are made. But why don't we pray? Father, we thank you for the discipleship that has been happening here for decades. We're grateful for that. We we don't we're not looking at this because we think nothing's happened here, but we're looking at this because we want more to happen here. And so, Father, uh, continue to cultivate within us a desire for discipleship. Cultivate within us a, a willingness to disciple others. Cultivate within us a, a, a vision for seeing this as really 
a place that is known for making disciples. Because we're making disciples. Now, Father, we, we recognize that, that apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're not making disciples. And if we're not growing in love, we're not making disciples. And so help us to understand that gospel and help us to grow in love because we've been loved. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.